0: Kobe Bryant was a basketball icon. Uh, He was drafted by the Lakers out of high school. Unbelievable. And his rookie season, the Lakers made it to the Western Conference Semifinals. Uh, The Lakers were down three games to one. Game five was tied 89-89 with 11 seconds left. Kobe Bryant, less than a year out of high school, brought the ball up the court for the last shot. With about five seconds left, Kobe drove right, pulled up for a jumper, and airballed it. Overtime. At the start of overtime, Kobe had a wide-open three. He airballed it again. Back-to-back airballs. With around 40 seconds left in overtime, Kobe spotted up for another three and airballed it again. The score was 96 to 93. The Lakers are down by three with seven seconds left. They needed a big shot. Kobe got the ball. He spotted up, took a deep three, and airballed it again. Lakers lose. They're knocked out of the playoffs. Kobe wasn't great in that moment. But that moment didn't define Kobe's basketball greatness. You need to look at Kobe's entire career in order to see his greatness. Kobe Bryant, after that point, went on to win five NBA championships, is the NBA's fourth all-time scorer, and Kobe hit 27 career game winners. Momentary weakness sometimes clouds someone's greatness. John the Baptist was a great prophet of God. Jesus said none born of woman was greater, but John also doubted. Yet according to Jesus, a moment of doubt doesn't define the life and ministry of John. If if you understand the life and ministry of John the Baptist, including his doubt, your faith in Jesus as the Christ will deepen and you will find more assurance and comfort for your soul in Jesus Christ. There are significant truths for you and me, brothers and sisters, in verses seven through 15. But in order for them to make a practical difference in your life, you have to understand them. And you have to receive them by faith. Pray that God would help you to understand them And to receive these truths by faith. My point is the same as it was last week. In your times of doubt, Jesus provides you the gospel to allay your doubt, fortify your faith. So that you can repent, trust, and find assurance and comfort in him. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit takes the truths of verses 7 through 15. And uses them to build your confidence in Christ And bring you greater joy and passion to your heart. So before we get started, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew. I'll read Matthew 11, 1 through 19, and then we'll get into the six points that I have. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I have six points, and I begin with number one, John's momentary doubt didn't make him a compromising bootlicker. Didn't make him a compromising bootlicker. As John's disciples left, Jesus spoke very highly of John. He didn't disparage John because of his doubt. Not only did Jesus send gospel encouragement to John in prison, he also used the opportunity to give the crowds more gospel. Verses seven and eight. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. Now the crowds likely heard John's question. People consider John a great prophet, but sensing his hesitancy about Jesus, they probably had their own doubts. Jesus took the opportunity to validate the life and ministry of John. A bootlicker is someone who is willing to compromise or change just to please important people. John was not a compromising bootlicker. John was a faithful prophet of God who boldly pointed people to Jesus, the Christ, but he also doubted. Going out into the wilderness was not like taking a trip to the grocery store. People needed a reason to go to the wilderness and they needed to put forth an effort to go, not an easy thing to go out there. They didn't travel into the wilderness then to see a reed shaken by the wind, a man who was easily duped into following popular opinion or in being a people pleaser. John was faithful to God's call on his life. Neither did crowds travel out into the wilderness to see a man dressed in soft clothing. Now those who wore soft and fancy clothes, those were in king's houses. The term for soft can be used of effeminate men, but here is likely used to refer to a compromising bootlicker who lives in luxury because he kisses up to political leaders Dr. Hendrickson explained, quote, those who wear soft garments are the people without backbone, sycophants who readily kowtow to those in authority and are rewarded with a high office in a king's palace, a position that enables them to wear soft garments in harmony with a high station in life to which they have attained, unquote. John wasn't a kiss-up. He wore camel hair clothing the crowds didn't go to John because he was a compromising bootlicker who brown-nosed political leaders. Yes, John doubted, but he was a bold preacher even more, a God-ordained prophet sent to prepare the way for the Christ. They, they went to John in the wilderness to hear God's voice, to confess their sins, to receive baptism for repentance. John was important for them because he transitioned them to Jesus the Christ. The crowds were right to esteem the life and ministry of John the Baptist because John was the exclusive forerunner to the Messiah. When you promote the Big Mac, you're also promoting McDonald's. How does John relate to the gospel, and how does Jesus's confirmation of John help allay your doubts, fortify your faith? and give you greater assurance and comfort in Christ. John may have doubted Jesus, but he was not a compromising bootlicker. He was a faithful prophet sent to transition people to Jesus. Keep in mind that a few verses earlier, Jesus said, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive what? A prophet's reward. John's role in redemptive history is key to substantiating Jesus as the Christ. So do you receive John's testimony to the Christ? And will you receive by faith the reward that John received? Jesus considered, Jesus considered John the Baptist, a sort of gold ring, a precious gold ring setting high the sparkling diamond of the good news of Jesus the Christ Christ. John's life and ministry is meant to allay your doubt, fortify your faith, and bring more assurance and comfort for your soul, to bring you more blessing in Christ. So, dear ones, though you may doubt, do you believe what John believed? And do you find solace for your soul in Christ to whom John pointed? Number two. John's momentary doubt didn't invalidate his identity and prophetic gospel ministry. Jesus asked, verse nine, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For about 500 years, Israel had no prophet. Malachi, then silence. Then God sent John. John was sent by God to speak for God right before God himself showed up. And Jesus taught that, But Jesus said that John was more than a prophet. Jesus said, verse 10, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus was referring there mostly to Malachi 3.1, which has flavors of Exodus 23.20 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Jesus was preaching that John was a prophet. But even more, was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy and therefore the unique forerunner to the Christ. So here's Malachi 2, 17 through chapter three, verse two. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Malachi spoke for God. God promised that he himself would come to his people. God also promised, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So the Lord God himself would come and would send a messenger prophet before him to prepare the way for him. Now look at verse 10 again. Jesus applies Malachi 3.1 to John, but his quote of Malachi is slightly different. Did you hear the difference? He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The your, your, and you are singular. And they refer to a person. And this is intriguing. John's the messenger. Who's the you? Who's the you? Well, Jesus quotes Malachi as if the Lord God is speaking to the Messiah. I send my messenger before your face, Messiah, who will prepare your way before you. God's messenger was to prepare the way for the Lord God himself, which means that the Messiah is the Lord God. You making that connection? The Messiah is the Lord God. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was conferring that John was God's promised Messiah prophet, or uh, messenger prophet. But more than a prophet, he was the forerunner to the Messiah, to the Christ. And in saying that, he was saying that he himself is the Christ, the Lord God come to his people. John's momentary doubt didn't invalidate his own identity and prophetic gospel ministry, nor did it invalidate Jesus, the Christ, to whom John pointed. Jesus said in verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That's big. The prophets and the law prophesy of the Christ, the Messiah. The centerpiece of the prophets and the law of all Old Testament scripture is Jesus the Christ. The Old Testament bears witness to Christ till John. And when John showed up, he advanced the message of the prophets and the law because he testified that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, is the Christ. And once again, Jesus took the crowd back to Malachi. Look at verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, he, talking about John now, is Elijah who is to come. The Lord says in Malachi 4.5, listen to this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Since John is Elijah who is to come, then the great and awesome day of the Lord has also come. The Lord God was in their midst. John asked the question, are you the one? Jesus answered it for John and Jesus answered it for the crowds. The crowds simply needed to accept John the Baptist as the prophet sent by God in the spirit and power of Elijah to make way for God the Messiah. Not Elijah reincarnated, can't go weird on this, But the forerunner to the Christ who came in the spirit and power of Elijah as the scripture teaches us to accept John the Baptist and his ministry is to accept Jesus as the Christ. And Lord God, come to his people to rescue them from their sin, guilt, misery and to give them eternal life in himself. To give them a kingdom. John doubted Jesus but it didn't change John's identity or ministry. John's doubt didn't strip him of God's grace and purpose. John's doubt didn't change what Jesus thought about him. Jesus said, verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Of every person born of ordinary human birth, not not Jesus, but everyone else. None was greater than John. So I think, brothers and sisters, we're meant to look at John the Baptist's life and ministry and to admire him as God's mouthpiece. An imperfect man whom God raised up at the right time to prepare the way for our Savior and our Lord to come. And if we truly admire John as Jesus did, we will listen to John and find salvation, assurance, and comfort in Jesus the Christ to whom John pointed. God is speaking to you prophetically right now, calling you to deeper trust and confidence in the gospel. God is using scripture to allay your doubt, fortify your faith, and bring you deeper assurance and comfort in the gospel. God is telling you right now, speaking to you, dear ones, from the Bible that he already sent his messenger to prepare the way for his coming, that John was that messenger and that Jesus is the Lord God in human flesh who came to rescue his people, rescue you and me from their sins and give them eternal life. No other prophet is coming. No other forerunner is coming. No other savior is coming. The forerunner to the Christ has already come as has the Christ Himself and the inauguration of His glorious kingdom. The Christ has come. The prophets and the law testify to Jesus the Christ. John came in the spirit uh, and power of Elijah and testified to Jesus the Christ. Jesus testified to all of this. Are you willing to accept that John is Elijah who has come and that Jesus is the Lord God who has come. Brothers and sisters, sometimes you may doubt. Sometimes you may doubt. But brothers and sisters, you do accept this by faith. You do accept this You do accept that Jesus is the Christ. You do accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Lamb of God who takes away your sins and has baptized you with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't the work of the Spirit in you help allay your doubt, fortify your faith, and bring you greater assurance and comfort just to know that you have the Spirit and he's working the gospel in you? Isn't that a comfort to you? Number three, John's greatness is surpassed by the least in the kingdom of heaven, by the least. Leonardo uh, da Vinci is among history's greatest intellects. It's been said of da Vinci, quote, Leonardo is a genius and a potential symbol of the universal man. Because of the breadth of his interest in the arts, science and technology spanning disciplines from chemistry, he discovered acetone to astronomy, he discovered the lumen scenario of the moon to math, he discovered the center of gravity of the pyramid to working with plastics, unquote. And, and you might have seen these uh, sometime in your passing, but da Vinci drew brilliant pictures of these flying machines, aviation, but only hundreds of years After Da Vinci, did humans actually take flight? Today, the least of pilots knows more about aviation than Da Vinci did and have experienced things that Da Vinci never dreamed of. The Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, it's this nasty, awesome-looking plane, is the fastest and highest flying aircraft of its kind. Its maximum speed is Mach 3.3+, and it reaches altitudes of over 85,000 feet. It is an, an engineering genius. The least of pilots is no da Vinci. But they are greater in their experience of aviation. You follow on that? Though no one born of woman was greater than John the Baptist, Jesus did say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Every one of the least of these, us, the least of these in the kingdom is greater than John in some way. Saints, this means that you and I are in some way greater than John the Baptist. He was a prophet. We're not prophets. He was the f- exclusive, the only forerunner to the Christ. We are not forerunners to Christ. How are the least in the kingdom greater than John? One source explains, quote, the least in the kingdom are more privileged than John because they stand after the cross and resurrection and thus having received the fullness of the spirit and the revelation of Christ's full ministry in the new age, they participate in what the prophets only saw from a distance. Thus the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John because they have received more revelation than any Old Testament prophet, including John, the greatest prophet of the old age, unquote. Brothers and sisters, we see and understand and experience things that John didn't, that the prophets didn't, that Moses didn't, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't. John, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, had the gospel of Christ, make no mistake, but we have it in greater clarity and detail and beauty. We live in the kingdom post-Pentecost with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have the full revelation of God in Christ in the completed scripture. One source explains, quote, but those in the kingdom of heaven have the greater privilege because they have actually entered the kingdom in its new covenant reality and become partakers in the new covenant through the blood of Christ, unquote. Now, are we greater than John the Baptist in terms of character? achievement Leon Morris says no and I agree with him Dr Morris understood Jesus to say that greatness in verse 11 means privileged position privileged position and Dr Carson takes it further than mere privilege he writes this quote the answer must not be in terms of mere privilege namely the least are greater because they live to see the kingdom actually inaugurated but in terms of the greatness already established for John. He was the greatest of the prophets because he pointed most unambiguously to Jesus. He was the greatest of the prophets because he pointed most unambiguously to Jesus. Nevertheless, even the least in the kingdom is greater yet Because living after the crucial revelatory and eschatological events have occurred, he or she points to Jesus still more unambiguously than John the Baptist, end of quote. Now understand what Carson is saying. John was great in that he pointed unmistakably to Jesus the Christ. But he did that prior to the cross, resurrection and ascension, And even the least of these in the kingdom, even you and me, brothers and sisters, point more unmistakably to Jesus the Christ because our confession of Christ today is after the cross-resurrection and ascension. Brothers and sisters, as you confess the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ and you live for his glory, you are even greater than John. Your confession and life point to a clearer and brighter revelation of Christ. John never saw in Christ what you and I see in Christ. Jesus allayed John's doubt, fortified his faith, and gave him assurance and comfort in the gospel, revealed in the prophets, and revealed in his own preaching ministry before the cross, resurrection, and ascension. The life, death, burial, resurrection, And ascension of Christ have been revealed to you, brothers and sisters, by the Spirit in Holy Scripture through the preaching of the Word so that Jesus may allay your doubts and fortify your faith and give you deep and rich and sweet assurance and comfort in the Gospel. Now we have to be clear about this, none of us fill the role that John did in redemptive history. We don't, that's not, that wasn't for us, that was God's uh, chosen role for John. That said, I think there is a connection here with the greatness mentioned in verse 11 and the greatness Jesus mentioned in reference to himself in John 14, 12. See if there's a connection here. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Jesus said that his people would do greater works than him. Now we have to understand that and I did preach on this before. As one source says, "Quote the church's witness-bearing mission as the body of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and its fruit among the nations will be greater than Jesus' works in number and scope. In number and scope. John testified to Christ. Yes, and so do we. But our witness is to the complete gospel of the crucified and risen and ascended Christ and the ministry of the church today is greater in number and in scope. Be not discouraged when you doubt. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Trust the gospel to allay your doubt, to fortify your faith, and to give you deep solace for your soul. Brothers and sisters, who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? What has Christ made you? What privilege do you possess as citizens of the kingdom? Even more, what privileges do you possess as children of God? Think of the gospel clarity that God has given you and me today. The clarity of the gospel. Think of the gospel clarity that Scripture lays out for us today. Think of what you have seen with the eyes of faith that the prophets and John longed to see. What greatness God has bestowed upon you, dear saints, for you accept that which God has gloriously revealed to you. In the complete gospel of God's holy word, the gospel given you through the apostolic witness of the apostles. Has God not shown you, brothers and sisters, immense favor and blessing in the gospel? Has God not given you vivid and striking truth Has God not loved you immensely by bestowing greatness upon you, his church? What marvelous grace, what marvelous comfort, what marvelous blessings. Number four, John's life illustrates the fierce opposition against the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 12 is a real head-scratcher. I mean a head-scratcher. It's one of the more difficult uh, verses in all of Scripture, Uh, to how to interpret it, how to understand it. Uh, The Greek gets tricky, and there's not consensus among good scholars here. It, It goes like this, and even as I read it in the ESV, there are certain assumptions being made by the translators here. So this is how it goes in the ESV. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. That's the tricky part. And the violent, that's another tricky part, take it by force. Now, the difficulty is this. What does it mean that the kingdom has suffered violence? The Greek there can be taken positive or negative. So it can swing in different senses. And then who are the violent who take the kingdom by force? And again, that can go in positive or negative. So I'll tell you how I understand it, but please know I am not dogmatic on this. Not dogmatic on this. First, verse 12 states that the kingdom has already begun. Can you see that in the text? Jesus inaugurated the kingdom at his coming. It is not an exclusively future kingdom, as some wrongly believe. The kingdom of Christ Jesus the King is now and then. It's already and it's not yet. It is inaugurated, but it is not consummated. The verb there is present passive, meaning at the time of John and beyond, the kingdom suffers violence, and if it's suffering violence, then it has begun. Second, the Greek words for has suffered violence and the violent are negative words. They, they can, though, be used positively um, as some take them in verse 12, but the natural sense and the natural use of the words is negative. Third, the kingdom of Christ suffers violence, persecution, oppression. John was in prison. Jesus promised his disciples suffering on account of him. The context in which this is said is surrounded by terrible things happening to the church. So the context seems to, to be aggression against Jesus and his kingdom, which we will watch heighten as we move through the, uh, uh, the gospel of Matthew. Fourth Many wicked people do come violently against Jesus and the kingdom. Remember Herod trying to destroy Jesus, the infant king? Later we'll encounter the Pharisees conspiring against Christ in order to what? To destroy him. In the book of Acts, Jesus' disciples, they suffer violence. And so I think Dr. Blomberg renders verse 12 right and well when he says it like this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent people attack it. I think that's what's going on here. The kingdom, or the kings, rather, doctrine is opposed. The king himself is flogged and crucified. The king's reign and rule are opposed. The king's law is opposed. The king's followers, the citizens of the kingdom, are opposed. The king's gospel is opposed. The king's church is opposed. And often opposed with ridicule, contempt, persecution, and oppression. It's violent. John the Baptist's life illustrates for us something important. The fierce opposition against the kingdom of heaven. John was incarcerated because he stood up for righteousness sake. In society, John was beheaded because he made political enemies, because he spoke for God and he stood for righteousness in society. Let's not forget what Jesus taught the 12 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that includes John. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I want you to pay particular attention to what I'm about ready to say and follow this. Suffering on account of Christ the King does not actually lead to doubt or weaken faith. It strengthens faith because Jesus said persecution would come. And so when it comes, it validates and confirms his word that we can actually trust what he says. We shouldn't be like, whoa, why is the church suffering like this? We should say, yes, it's happening. He said it would. He's so right. He's so good to preserve us through it. Look at his word coming true. Look at his prophetic words coming into be reality. When the church suffers violence, God works in and through it to strengthen His church to persevere in grace. Opposition and violence confirms our Lord's words and confirms that He will indeed care for us and sustain us through it. Why does the church often grow, sometimes rapid growth, in countries where Christians are persecuted? Why? Consider China today where Christianity is the fastest growing religion. Tens of millions have come to Christ in China despite horrible persecution there. Why is that? What's going on there? David, Dr. David Briannis, he's, he writes this. As the kingdom faced hostility then, so does it now. But believers can confidently rest In God's triumph over evil, sin, and death itself, in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever opposition the kingdom and its subjects may face, Job's declaration to the Lord remains true. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And there it is. The sovereignty and providence of God is a deep comfort for his people. Opposition will come, dear saints. But saints, we can rest assured that our God is triumphant over evil, sin, Satan, and death. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Let that truth allay your doubt, fortify your faith, and bring you immense assurance and comfort in the gospel. 5. John's life and ministry in the Old Testament point us to Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, I won't say much at this point. I already covered this point earlier. John was a prophet. A prophet spoke for God. But in John's case, he spoke of Christ and prepared the way for Christ Jesus the Lord God come to his people. The prophets and the law... Speak of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus born of a virgin, Jesus the rabbi and teacher, Jesus the leader of the twelve. He is the Lord God who is to come, who has come, rather. And Jesus or John's life and ministry only confirm the identity of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah. Number six, you who have ears to hear will hear this and find greater assurance and comfort in Christ Jesus said he who has ears to hear let him hear now if you take Jesus literally here this is a really weird statement those who have physical ears I mean it so so he's saying something more Jesus is speaking metaphorically he's addressing spiritual ears to hear He's saying those who have the spiritual ears to hear must hear what I'm saying. Now this means that some have spiritual ears to hear the gospel and some do not. Those whom God has given by his sovereign grace, spiritual ears hear the gospel and they respond with with faith. Those whom God has not given spiritual ears, those whom God has passed over and let in their sin, guilt, and misery, do not hear and instead continue in their persistent and willful unbelief. They don't have ears. The natural person cannot hear the gospel. They persist in unbelief. I want to solidify this point because this may be pushing on some of you, so stick with me here. Later in chapter 11, Jesus prays an important prayer. Try to make the connection here to what he's saying in verse 15. He prayed this. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And there's a theme there about little ones, little children going throughout Matthew. God reveals the gospel to whom he wills. Just like Jesus opened the ears of the physically deaf, and we have to think, when he comes and he does practical good to the body, he opens the physical ears of the deaf, what is he ultimately pointing us to when he does that? And he's pointing us to the reality that God alone can open the ears of the spiritually deaf to receive the gospel. He grants them repentance and faith. God has to do it or it won't happen. And the confirmation and the comfort that it will happen and that it has happened to you is to look what Jesus did physically and what he taught spiritually. God opens the spiritually deaf. God gives ears to hear and they respond by faith. In verse 15, Jesus is referring to the elect, God's chosen people, the people to whom God grants the gift of faith. So That might challenge some of your thinking, so let me mention two passages that I think will help grasp the essence of what Jesus is saying in verse 15. The first passage is Romans 8, 7, and 8. Listen carefully. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That talks of ability. It cannot do it. It cannot submit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Impossible, will never happen unless God's intervening grace comes. People lost in sin, people whose mind is set on the carnal flesh, the people who are at enmity with God do not have ears to hear the gospel. They can't. They can't submit to God's law and they can't please God. There must be an intervention of God's amazing and sovereign and warm grace for them to hear. The second is 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Listen to this and make the connection to verse 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, we break this down. The natural person is the person unaffected By God's grace, the person lost in their sin and guilt and misery, they have no ears to hear. They do not hear because the gospel is stupid to them. They want nothing to do with it. It is folly. I don't want to hear it. Get it out of my face. In fact, they are not able to hear and understand because the gospel is spiritually discerned which means God must give someone the ears to dis, to hear so that they can spiritually discern it the holy spirit has to be involved here when god gives a person ears to hear by the spirit they hear and they respond with faith that god gives them that's what it is to have the mind of christ having ears to hear or you could say faith is a fruit of the holy spirit that's galatians 5 Faith is a fruit that the Holy Spirit works and grows in us. It's something the Holy Spirit works in someone by the hearing of the gospel through preaching. People physically hear. People go to churches all around the world and sit there and physically hear, but never hear spiritually, never hear in their heart. They don't have the ears to hear. Unless by that gospel, the Holy Spirit in his power opens their hearts, gives them ears to hear, and they respond with faith. To you, unbelievers and hypocrites, and who I'm addressing here are those of you who are sitting here today. Scripture is clear that in the local church there are the wheat and the tares. There are some in local churches who they're hypocrites, they don't actually know God. So, to you, unbelievers and hypocrites, oh, that you would have ears to hear! Oh, that you would humble yourselves before God, admit and confess your sins to Him, and come to Him in trust and confidence to find a loving Father who pardons you. Do so today. Pray that God grants you mercy and grace and favor and that He would, by His sovereign Spirit and word through the preaching of the gospel, give you ears to hear. Oh, that you would hear. And now to you, saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us united to Christ by faith, dear little ones, dear least of these, who sometimes struggle with doubt, you have ears to hear. Because God, in His infinite love and infinite compassion and infinite mercy and infinite grace for you, gave you ears to hear. Jesus wants you to hear Him in this passage, so hear Him. Hear Him and delight in Him. Hear. hear Him and believe Him. Hear Him and take confidence in Him draw assurance he's giving you this he's loving you right now through his word giving you assurance and comfort this is to build you up to make you rock solid in the lord jesus christ and and i need him to do that you need him to do that for us hear him draw the comfort and assurance that he has for you knowing that christ jesus is the christ and he has rescued you from your sins are you hearing him today Now maybe you've heard Fox News, maybe you've heard CNN, maybe you've heard MSNBC, but have you heard Jesus Christ?